You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. CR Breakfast. Oh, Alternative news, analysis and current ass. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to 8 30 am Well, good morning everyone here on Monday Breakfast and uh, what a special day it is, March the 32nd. <laughs> For all of those people who are going on a bit of a you know detox, you've still got one more day to go. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Okay, so uh, yeah, in the studio we have Dean and Judith. Good morning, Dean. everyone. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, the weather is going to be 32 today, um, and a minimum of 25. Yeah, um, <laughs> and we also want to shout out, shout out to Julie, who's not been well, who's usually here with us uh, on Monday morning. So. Uh, just hope all's going well, Jules, for you. Good morning, Jules. Yeah. Um, so on the show today, just quickly, we yeah. will have um, uh, Jeanette coming on from the Federation of Community Legal Centres talking to us about the International um, Day of Racial Elimination and also a report. You mean racial, you right. mean racial discrimination? discrimination. Elimination. Yeah. <laughs> the elimination of racial discrimination, yeah. not racial discrimination. Yeah, elimination. No. Yeah. yeah, it's a bit of a tongue twister. Yeah. Um, and then after that, we will have um, Greg Denham coming into the studio. Yeah, great. Always great. Always great to hear, uh, hear from Greg. And he's going to be talking about LEAP, a law enforcement. Uh, against it had been against prohibition, but the names changed. So he's going to tell us a little bit about that. But uh, after, I mean, we know the comedy festival is is upon us, and it is April Fool's Day today. So uh, after eight, we're going to be hearing from some people who joined us um, about a month ago on Monday, Brecky, to talk about their shows in the festival. When I do it, when I do it, it's just loud. <laughs> <laughs> The best way to get a joke heard is just to yell it as loudly as possible. And if they laugh, who cares? And that was Jackie Lime. And we'll hear from him as well as a number of other people on, uh, later in the show, like after eight. Uh, we're going to also be speaking with Dr. Nicholas Persoul. About, and he's from the Australian Catholic University, and one of his areas of study is, is political Islam. And he's going to be talking about the need for better education and understanding to counteract a lot of the negative messages um, about Islam that are promulgated, not only by the extreme right, he, he says uh, more generally in society. So we'll hear from him just before eight. And um, that, you know, it is April Fool's Day. And I have to. I don't know about you. Do you, do you observe April Fool's Day, Dean? Only when it's being um, observed on me. Oh, um, I see. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I guess I tend to forget. In all of my schooling, we always never did it. But as yeah. you get older, yeah. Yeah. Where was your schooling? Strathmore. 
in so, some, yeah, okay, yeah. down the other way, which is yeah. true. Well, you know, I have to confess that I've always been rather intrigued by the character of the fool. And so I wanted to honor, given that we're having the great privilege of, you know, broadcasting on April Fool's Day, I wanted to honor the day by speaking with someone else who also takes it seriously. And that person is Donna Confetti, an artist, a therapist, a self-proclaimed fool, and uh, certainly recognized as that by her peers. And I began by asking her what the day meant to her. It's the day for the amateurs. The day for amateurs, like, what do you mean? It's a day for amateur fools, yes. I do it the rest of the year. I see. And uh, I'm thinking that the fool has been underrated, misunderstood, and really the smartest of them all. What do you think? I think that that's all part of the mask of the fool. It works better if it's unexpected. And a lot of humour, like hoaxes and pranks and jokes, rely on a balance between innocence and wisdom. And a real fool is, in a way, mimicking an innocent, you know, somebody who doesn't have the social or mental capacity to be conniving, whereas a fool is, you know, kind of actively using cunning and humour to have some fun to upset the balance of power, if that makes sense. Yes, and yeah, it does make sense. And uh, can you tell me a bit about the history of the fool in theatre, for example? It's a very contested history. The figure of the fool is present in many cultures. Some of the most interesting stuff is looking at Camel de Latte, the Italian tradition. It continues right through Shakespeare. And more contemporary manifestations of it is stand-up comedy. My interest in it is around the performative role of the fool, but not necessarily as a theatrical performer. The way humour works is interesting, whether it's in the professional sense of the fool or the clown or the stand-up comedian, but also the, you know, like with April Fool's Day, what is the role of fooling around and I think it's quite disruptive. And, and is, that, is that disruption what attracted you to it? Because I know it's something you've looked into over the years. I didn't understand it as that to start with. It was more about insubordination, an opportunity to upset the power structure. And historically, fooling around for ordinary people is given like a time-limited period, like through Carnival, for example, or April Fool's morning, not April Fool's day. You know, really, it's just the morning. The jokes all have <laughs> to end by noon. Yeah, or the jokes on you, you yeah. know, if you're going beyond that time limit. So it's a limited role and a limited space where you can invert the power structure or where you can assume the innocence of the fool in order to set somebody else up as a fool. I yeah. keep having these images from theatre of the, the fool in the court saying something that's true but walking a very uh, thin line between being hauled off to the gallows and um, giving everyone a good laugh. It's a bit of a precarious role and it's mimicking the village idiot, the person who innocently points out the truth in a way that most people couldn't, like the fool was in a position to do that. 
But generally, it wasn't to be directed at the uh, holder of power. It was to be directed at the other people around that power. So, like, part of the fool's role is to pull the rug out from your expectations. So, like, part of it can be setting up the expectation, but then disrupting that. Like, the benefit of that is that you can get a new perspective on something. It doesn't have to be shallow, it can be deep. It doesn't have to be deep, it can be shallow. But if you think about the fool giving another perspective, if you think of a coin, we often talk about flipping the coin or two sides of the coin. But really, a fool is looking at the edge, looking at the side of the coin, operating on the edge. Yeah, that's amazing. There's not a word I can say to that. I love that idea. Wondering uh, if you will be celebrating April Fool's Day. I'm trying to think of how to. It's like I think of it as the day for the amateurs, that everyone else can have a crack at being subversive <laughs> and disruptive <laughs> on April Fool's Day and during Carnival. And, you know, that should be real fool's holiday, really. So the real fools can just sit back and, and have a good laugh? I think so. It's, I do have some friends who are currently overseas and are returning back on Monday, and they won't be listening to this program, but I am thinking, how can I get some for sale signs to put up in their front yard so when they come home it looks like the house has been put on the market? <laughs> They've recently renovated. That's kind of as far as I've gone at the moment of thinking what I could do, or even thinking about how I can prank you. And that's where I thought it was a good place to end that interview because I knew I was speaking with a professional, not an amateur. <laughs> so, And not only that, Donna is in Brisbane, so she has the advantage of an extra hour in the mm. morning to do that prank. So, uh, she's take, And she's taking the day off today. Oh, prob- oh, well, amateurs ab- like us get on the scene. And, you yeah. Know. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I'm kind of nervous. But, you know, for all the people out there who are living on the third side of the coin, it's your day, and, um, yeah, enjoy it. Here's Dee Dee Bridgewater. Oh, send me up now, baby. I've got a story to tell about a dirty old dog. And there was Dee Dee Bridgewater with Hound Dog. And that was the big Mama Thornton song from 1953. And I think in the middle of all that, some bloke named Elvis. Mm, some, some guy who was uh, very much into hair, Joel, made that <laughs> song very, very popular. <laughs> he did, but he didn't quite get it, I don't think, <laughs> listening to Dee Dee Bridgewater and big Mama Thornton. Yeah. yeah. It, is, it, is, uh, it is amazing isn't it, how many songs were written by other people a long, long time ago and made famous by people who well, were famous. Well, you know, you know um, black women in yeah. this case, um, their work, and, you know, the girl groups. Yeah. You know, yeah. like the Beatles did about five of the girl group numbers in yeah. their early, before they were you know, writing their own songs, and, uh, yeah, lots of groups um, really co-opted in a way those, uh, and got way more money, you know, the end, yeah. than, than the women who initially put those songs out. So, yeah. I had the pleasure of seeing the Staple Sisters about 10 years ago. Yeah. And, uh, and the dad was there, and, you know, Mavis and, and her whole family. At, yeah. Uh, and I was like, who are these people? You know, and someone had taken me there. It's amazing what you miss out on if you don't sort of follow that whole line of yeah, where the music comes from. For sure. Yeah, mm. it's, yeah it's good to be, you know, always learning. It's great. 
And Donna, I've got to say thanks to Donna. And we did, and we will right now. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jean. Yeah, thanks to Donna. That was fantastic to, to just hear a bit more. And, uh, you know, a lot of you out there may have very much, may have heard about the third side of the coin, but I hadn't, so I just need to get out a bit more, I think. <laughs> and my attempt at the third side of the coin was saying today I was going to be top of 30. I'll get back to the real weather. It's a minimum <laughs> of 11. It's a maximum of 17. And there has been some uh, slight drizzle this morning. So, uh, yeah, that's yeah, the weather. Rug up. <laughs> back in just a moment. We appreciate, like, you mob and all the people coming and visit us and doing stuff like this, you know. It's very good. It keeps a positive mindset in our mind, you know, and we really appreciate it. Because of her we can, yeah. I want to be a better, better man, yeah. Because of her we can. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. You can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime. How do you rehabilitate someone? They just put you in a cell and tell you this is how long you're going to do and it's meant to rehabilitate you, you know. Rehabilitation starts when you get out. That's when your life begins again, doesn't it? In here, your life's on hold. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 When I first come to this jail, was about 10 years ago and I was a young one. A whole heap of young ones come off the truck there the other day and they call me Auntie Marlene. So it helped me recognise and realise that I pulled myself up like, yeah. They're starting to look up to me, so I've got to represent and do the right thing now. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. You're on 855 AM 3CR. Last December, uh, the UN General Assembly called for a global uh, concrete action for the total elimination of racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia and related intolerance and the comprehensive implementation of and follow-up to the Durban Declaration and Program of Action. As well, on the 21st of March... It is the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination and the Federation of Community Legal Centres sent out a press release which, which just plainly said, Ty, today we remember. And to have a little bit more of a chat about you know, what the FCLC do, the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, we are joined by Jeanette Nkrumah, who is the Smart Justice Coordinator at the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Good morning, Jeanette. Morning, Dean. Thank you for joining us on 3CR. I, um, before we get going, I just wanted to uh, quickly get you to tell us a little bit about who the uh, Federation of Community Legal Centres is, their history, and I guess their, their primary focus. Yeah, so I guess um, really plainly, the communi- uh, Federation of Community Legal Centres 
is the Movement for Justice. Um, we represent 50 community legal centres in Victoria as well as Aboriginal legal services and we work towards a Victoria that's just and fair for all. So we are the peak body for community legal centres and we work on behalf of them. And I think um, more importantly too, it's all about making sure that, um, you know, I think it was in 2013 or 2016 where Michelle McDonald, um, you know, it was talking about the injustices that were happening with PSO and public contract at train stations and things like that where you were obviously, you know, had the opportunity to comment on the Victoria Police community consultation and things like working for law reform to develop a fairer legal system that better responds to the needs of the disadvantaged as well. Yes, and we, one of our member centres, um, Sunnington Kensington, does a lot of work on the police accountability project and continues that to this day as well. And, and so I mentioned the 21st of March was the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination and you, you had your press release asking us to remember some of the injustices that have and are still occurring. Well, why did you feel that this was necessary to get this message out? Yeah, I thought this was really necessary because um, in Australia we celebrate Harmony Day on the 21st of March and a lot of people don't know that um, this was a political decision made by the Howard government in the 90s to focus um, on the social cohesion and the harmony aspect of the 21st of March, which, as you mentioned before, is the International Day for Elimination of Racial Discrimination, uh, commissioned by the United Nations there. And for me, I felt that it was really important that we remember that there's still work to be done. Mm -hmm. um, and while we posit ourselves as a really progressive and strong multicultural nation, there is a real strong underlying um, and enduring colonial legacy that really affects many, many Australians. Um, and it's important on the 21st of March that we remember that we still need to have really meaningful and critical public conversations about race discrimination um, and how we work in a society today and that's still grappling with the effects of previous wrongs and harms. Yeah, and I think um, I mentioned in the introduction um, the follow-up to the Durban Declaration and, and Program of Action. So the day itself came about due to the events that happened in 1960 in um, Sharpville, South Africa, when police obviously opened fire and killed 69 people at a peaceful demonstration um, who were demonstrating against the apartheid past laws. Unfortunately, as you just mentioned, we're still seeing the ugly face of racial discrimination um, you know, represented in, in public discourse. What do you think are some of the challenges that, I guess, the people being discriminated against are facing at the moment and what you see within your role? Yeah, um, I think outside of my role, um, this is something that's quite personal, personal. to me as mm. well. Um, my parents were migrants from Ghana and I was born here as well as my brother. And I really remember um, when I first noticed that things were different for us and there was a time... It would have been about 10 years ago now. My brother had been told by my mum that he couldn't go to late night shopping with his friends. Um, and he, you know, called her out on it and was like, what's wrong? We've never, we've never had this issue before. And she really plainly said, um, you know, it's because the police are looking out for Sudanese youth. You're tall, you're dark, and they really just, they can't tell the difference. And I think for me, it's really the idea that, um, that still affects people that are being discriminated today. The idea that racial discrimination is that really small percentage of 
um, very loud, violent or vitriol, you know, um, racist talking on the train or even physical violence. But a lot, the fact is that a lot of it is really hidden and it's quite silent. And I think that's why a lot of people um, are often able to not believe stories of racism or we think it's not a problem when really it's something that affects many Australians every day. And I think that it's also something that can really, really affect your mental health, um, your output that during your education, whether it be primary, high school, tertiary education, and at work as well. These things happen everywhere, and we need to be more aware of the small, subtle effects of racial discrimination as we move through society as well. And you mentioned, uh, you know, using that personal experience and obviously the small, subtle um, things that are happening. But with people like Milo Yiannopoulos gaining popularity and, and your past report suggesting an over 50% increase in racist attacks on African Australians, do you believe that there is a way of sort of countering this national populism and extreme supremacist ideologies that are coming up with people like Milo? Um, yeah, I think there are many ways to do that. And I think, firstly, it's really about having a conversation mm. and naming the behaviours for what they are and calling out that sort of ideology. And it's that statistic of a uh, 50% increase in racist, racist attacks um, came off the back of the Victorian election last year. That's when we pulled that statistic um, from conversations with um, our member centres. And I think it's really important that, again, like I said before, it's not just the outliers. It's mm. not just the overt racist. It's something that comes through as part of our politics and divisive rhetoric when we talk about the other and migrants and immigration policies. We have to think and ask ourselves, what does that, how does that affect community and how does it affect us all? And I think um, talking about it plainly and really calling out the behaviour for what it is is so important in terms of finding a solution to the issue. And, and I also mentioned that in December that the General Assembly had called for that concrete action and they also prescribed comprehensive measures for, I guess, combating all the scourges of racism and, you know, adequate remedies for victims and noting with concern, I guess, the lack of effective implementation thereof, especially in particular the spread um, in many parts of the world of various racist extreme movements. FCLC is currently preparing or writing a report. Can you tell us about, about that report and why you're writing it? Yeah, we're writing that report um, on the back of that 50% increase that we had from last year and we're looking to amplify the voices and the stories of the people who face discrimination every day. Um, we're recognising, again, that this is something that affects us all as a community and we need to create an opportunity for change. So really this is going to be a powerful narrative of things that happen every day. Um, and I guess for people like myself, I'm also writing this report and working on it with the Federation because I think that we need to get to a point where we don't need to write reports like this anymore. Um, personally, I think it's you know one of those things where you kind of think about it. We're in 2019. We could be talking about having, I don't know, it might sound silly, but we could be talking about having flying cars and different things like that, but we're still having these conversations about racism and they still sit on the surface. It's really superficial, the conversations that we have. This report is really about going deeper and getting to the crux of these issues and then creating positive social change around that as well. And who are the participants of this board? I guess how can people get involved and what are some of the, 
you've just sort of mentioned some of them, but what would be some of the intended outcomes? Yes, um, so people can get involved. It's a really open and community process. Um, they can go to our website, which is sdlc.org, and sign up to follow the report or share a story. And we're really looking for um, people from different sectors, community members, journalists, um, if they have insights to what happened um, towards the end of 2018. And they also observed, um, you know, a shift in um, culture and a heightened sense of racial discrimination. We're looking to hear from them. Um, But I suppose some of the intended outcomes are getting really strong recommendations for how we talk about race um, in public and political discourse. What are those um, law and order narratives and um, racialized politics that affect people? Um, and how do we combat them and create a fair, just and thriving society for all Victorians and even broader to that, all Australians? And Jeanette, I guess as a community, we should acknowledge, you know, the, the efforts and the initiatives undertaken by organisations like the FCLC to, you know, prohibit racial discrimination and racial segregation and to sort of engender that sort of full enjoyment of the social and cultural rights of everybody. So we thank you very much for, for joining us on 3CR and um, we'll put your link on the uh, website and let people know that they can get involved. Everybody has a story. It's not just those people that... Um, as you say, have been discriminated against on the train, but it could be a mental thing that is happening to them and it's a quite a silent discrimination. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you and enjoy your day. Thanks. And that was uh, Jeanette Nkrumah from the Federation of Community Legal, Legal Sentence. Yeah, we'll and, what, and what a great interview, Dean. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was, um, good work. The good work they're doing. It, it is. It is quite amazing when you sort of think that we ha- we have to have a day. Yes, about exactly. That, no, you know? I agree. Yeah. I agree. The the need for the the statement of the day itself is already a, a comment mm. In, mm. on what's going on. Yeah. We'll, we'll be back in just a moment with our next guest, Greg Denham. My name is Ruby Susan Mouth. My pronouns are they. You're listening to 3CR Radical Radio, and that was Binde with Stella, Rosie, and Claudia on. Hello, I'm Liz Wright. Welcome to Are You Looking at Me and International Day for People with Disability. Today on the show, we meet Trish Maloney and Frank Corbenti. Are some of the elders. Did you miss our 12 hour special broadcast for International Day of People with a Disability? Radical Disabled programmers discuss the NDIS, Aboriginal rights, creativity, youth access, financial security, parenting, LGBTIQ, intersections and so much more. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2018 and listen back anytime. Panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope 
only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. And we're back on 855 AM 3CR. And, and uh, what time is it? I'm just uh, checking oh, out. Oh, yeah, it's t- t- um, 6.30 if yeah. you're in Brisbane. Here in Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> it is April Fool's Day, everyone, uh, March 32nd. So, um, yeah, great to have Greg Denham join us in the studio this morning. And in some ways, Greg doesn't need much introduction to 3CR because I know he's been on in Psychedelia from time to time and he's been on other breakfast shows. But welcome and thanks for coming in, Greg. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, and so just for people who might not have been introduced to Greg before, just uh, explain he's been involved in drug policy for over 25 years, a former police officer with national, local and international experience in harm reduction, and he's also worked with law enforcement people yeah, in different in developing countries, so yeah, an international perspective on these issues. Yeah, most of the work I've done in, um, in, in the international area was in Southeast Asia, China, um, some work in India and Africa around, um, I guess, gaining police support for pre- um, prevention programs for HIV and other bloodborne viruses, which is a bit, um, very much about needle and syringe programs, condoms, okay. methadones, that sort of, you know, um, that, that sort of um, overlap between um, the law and health. So um, it's critical that police support, particularly programs such as needle exchange. So, and uh, in many parts of the world, particularly Southeast Asia, 50% of all new HIV infections are through um, injecting drug use and sharing needles and syringes. So getting police support is really critical. In those yes, absolutely. Settings. As it was here in Australia as well. When well, that's right. Going back. Introduced. Yeah, going back to the mid 80s, and yeah. um, you know the first needle and syringe program was started in Sydney and it was an illegal operation which the police turned a blind eye to and um, so and it made all the difference in terms of preventing <coughs> the spread of HIV here in Australia absolutely we are and still are, are one of the world leaders in terms of HIV prevention and uh, you know we um, are looked upon by many um, countries um, as a model for a very very um, oh I guess um, exceptional um, prevention programs around Mm. HIV. I remember a report coming out, I think in the late 80s, early 90s, that compared different cities and their HIV rates. And in places like Glasgow, they were through the roof, among injecting drug users, through the Mm. roof, because they didn't have clean needle programs. And often, you know, it's the kind of thing that uh, the right-wing media ramps up. But I think one of the things that was important, I'd be interested in what you feel in Australia at that time, was the excellent education programs that were... Yeah, I think the other uh, part of that was that um, it was a collaborative stakeholder engagement uh, model which um, demonstrated that uh, if we work together to deal with an issue such as um, HIV, um, all of the key stakeholders were there and uh, I think that that demonstrated that we can work collaboratively so to address issues. So who were some issue. of the st- when you say Well, certainly um, in Sydney, um, it was um, uh, the gay community, men who have sex with men and uh, um, uh, the sex worker groups, um, police, um, health, um, you know, people working in, in the um, medical sort of um, research sort of area, um, local government, state government, um, health departments. So it was very much, a, I guess, a collaborative effort to um, look at different ways in which um, HIV could be prevented and, 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 and particularly things like um, ensuring that 
uh, police didn't um, seize condoms as evidence of sex work. You know, mm. and that still yes. happens in some countries, which it is hard to believe. It still happens in South Australia yeah. sometimes, actually, unbelievably. <laughs> I know. It's, yeah. a, it's hard to believe it happens today in some, yeah. in some places. Yeah. But uh, yeah. that's the sort of, that, those practical sorts of policies mm-hmm. are the sorts of things I talk about with police in those, um, yeah. particularly in Southeast Asia. Yeah. yeah, and of course, um, police were very much around the table, as you say, back, back then. And uh, and I'm, I know that today, you're, one of the things that you're going to talk about is, in fact, um, LEAP, which uh, started as um, um, law enforcement against um, prohibition. prohibition. But can you tell us a bit about how it started and then why you've changed the name? Sure. Well, it started back in the early 2000s in America. And a group of police over there basically decided that um, the war on drugs wasn't working. And um, basically they were saying that um, it was not only not working, it was actually being counterproductive. It was actually causing more harm. So uh, a guy called Jack Cole and a number of other people on the um, West Coast said, look, you know, we need to do something about this. So they formed um, a, a small kind of pressure group which became LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. They decided then that prohibition was failing and that we needed to legalise all drugs. So it grew and um, more police came on board. It went to the UK. And then about uh, five years ago, uh, there was, I guess, a change of philosophy around LEAP, and uh, particularly in the United States. And the the attitude became more of, okay, we need to work collaboratively with other agencies to to address this issue. So it became law enforcement action partnerships. And um, LEAP Australia always followed, I guess, the, the original American model. But I guess I decided that um, to be consistent with what's happening in the UK and the US, and there's also Belgium, there's you know German branches, there's you know leaps growing. So, so it's very much an international organisation. It is, it is, yes, yeah. yes. It's not just mm-hmm. here. It's um, the US and the UK mm-hmm. groups are very strong. Yeah, yeah, very strong groups. Yeah. Especially because trillions, trillions of dollars were being spent on the war of drugs. Yes, you know, that's right. Uh, worldwide. That's right. And, and, and it still is, unfortunately. We still have this uh, massive push towards uh, more police resources. Uh, the criminal justice system, whether it's policing, courts, prisons, you know, uh, 60 to 70% of their business is about drugs, mm. directly or indirectly. So, so they're the major beneficiaries, essentially, of what is happening. Of course. Mm. You know, they have a massive investment in the war on drugs. It's, it's, so so it's, how do you move them out of that investment? Look, it's very challenging, and uh, it, it, I guess it, it, it is about raising awareness about how um, our current approach towards drugs is not working. Yes. And uh, I read recently um, that a senior police officer in Victoria continued to, to kind of toe this line around, well, you know, all we need to do is ensure that we get tougher, particularly with people like drug traffickers or, you know, we, we need to, um, you know, uh, ensure that people who are um, using drugs um, get sent a strong message around, you know, law enforcement. And uh, so we still get this kind of rhetoric. It's such an old message, you know. It's, it's, it's this rhetoric you feel like, you know, it's had its day and it hasn't worked. We know that. We know that exactly, yeah. you know. And I think for some police, um, well, probably many police, I think it's all they know about how to deal with the issue um, and I think they're a bit overwhelmed by the fact that they know what they're doing isn't working and um, I don't think they have many options to actually um, deal with the issue. Now what I would like to see is I'd like to see for a start at least all drugs decriminalised like the Portugal model that yeah. we get police out of arresting people for drug use. So I think it's basically 
you know, a complete waste of resources, a waste of time for police. And the, um, you know, as uh, David Nutt, Professor David Nutt from the UK said, you know, for many people who don't have um, issues or problems with their drug use, the major harm that they experience from their drug use is being caught by the police. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, yeah, so there's, there's more harm from drug policy than from the drugs themselves, essentially. Exactly, you're yeah. right. You, you're, you're spot on. You know, uh, it, it's, it's a case of if once you uh, are apprehended by the police and if you do get a record, um, that has more, more significant or negative impact on your life than um, uh, any um, illicit drug use could potentially have. Yeah, so that's interesting. And then, of course, the, the illegality also means people don't know what they're getting when they buy drugs. So mm. it's not, uh, mm. you know, uh, it's not controlled in any kind of way. And, uh, yeah. And even, right. even knowing the penalties for what some people might call a recreational drug and what those effects could be on their life. You know, it might be somebody who is a straight person, has one weekend, gets caught, and all of a sudden this whole thing just unravels yeah. because he's just been at the wrong place at the Wrong yeah. time. I'm not uh, advocating uh, the drug use, but mm. just yeah, mm. not knowing what the impacts could be once you mm. are in that situation. And who gets caught is another issue. <laughs> That's right. Because police have, um, I guess, in recent years, very much focused on what might, we might describe as low-hanging fruit. So the more obvious type of drug use in the community, which is often around uh, music festivals, mm. um, those types of events, um, Rainbow Serpent, and the other... Um, I guess uh, focus has been about uh, driving so and you hear this a lot about police and drugs and driving despite the fact that there's no evidence that illicit drugs are causing more accidents they are really focusing hard on driving because they are low-hanging fruit they're Mm -hmm. easy to catch someone with a slight trace no impairment slight trace of a drug in them are being apprehended so that kind of focus on the low-hanging fruit where they can get their message across to the whole community um, you know it's Basically, it's an idea that they, they demonstrate, um, I guess, to the general public that they are doing their job, whether it works or not. This is the, this is the big thing, whether it works or not. And clearly, it's not working because yeah. people continue to use illicit drugs and they will continue to, to use illicit drugs because those types of messages are ineffective. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating the way a failed policy from the U.S., the, you know, the prohibition of alcohol, kind of a trans- was transmitted across to then other drugs and then perpetrated on the whole world. I mean, it's a nonsense. Well, that's right, because um, what's happening is um, because police uh, try to um, identify both cannabis and um, methamphetamine with, with drivers, the traces of those substances, people are switching to other drugs like um, GHB and ketamine and those types of substances, which um, can, be, can be quite problematic, particularly if you mix your drugs. And uh, this is the thing that... Uh, you know, we're finding with a lot of dance parties, rave parties, is that people are switching to those mm-hmm. drugs, which can have some harmful effects if they're mixed with other drugs. And, uh, you know, and this, this is what happens, is, is the displacement to other drugs, potentially more risky drugs, will happen, as it did with Prohibition, because, you know, once they yeah. um, banned um, alcohol... They continued to produce alcohol, but it was much, much stronger alcohol because it was much easier to get, particularly across state lines, it's much easier to get um, a small amount of a very powerful type of alcohol you know, across state, yeah. state lines and a big tr- tr- um, truckload of beer, for example. Yeah. You know. and, and it was also no control on the production again, so there were some pretty lethal things called alcohol that were going across. Oh, of course, that's right. Yeah. You know, People the, got very sick the rate of blindness, yeah. you know, from wood alcohol increased yeah. significantly during Prohibition, yeah. and we're, we're seeing that now because, yes, you're right, there, is, there are no controls, there are no... Um, you know, quality assurances, uh, measures to ensure that the product is, you know, 
um, pure or um, doesn't have any contaminants or those types of other mm. um, substances which can be can be harmful and, and does impact mm. on what the person believes they are getting when they use an illicit substance. Yes. So, Greg, we started talking about... Um the new name, Law Enforcement Action Partnership, and the need for education and, and education for police as well. So what does LEAP do? I mean, is LEAP doing something to, you know, to um, educate? Yes, yes. In fact, um, recently at the uh, Commission on Narcotic Drugs in Vienna, which is a major event um, held each year, uh, the group of um, LEAP representatives from the UK uh, announced that we have a statement of, of support for drug policy reform for police. So this was drafted last year and uh, I was one of the people that helped draft that statement. So that's now being uh, circulated internationally to uh, police and former police who can sign on this statement. Basically it's, it's designed to give police an opportunity to um, acknowledge that, that they believe that the current approach isn't working and that they would like to see efforts towards drug policy reform. So it doesn't say, um, oh, I'm a police officer and I want drugs legalised. It basically says, we know the system isn't working. What we would like to do is have a conversation about drug policy reform and so these are some of the options that we should think about like decriminalisation, legalisation etc. So this is a so part of the conversation we need to have. And so this is coming from an international level. That's right. What are you doing here in Victoria to get the word out? Well I, I'm, I'm speaking, I've, I've, I'm speaking uh, at public events and uh, I've spoken recently at, at a, an, a, an overdose awareness event, I've spoken you know, at um, <coughs> um, various meetings, etc. Uh, I'm intending to ramp up LEAP this year. We've almost finalised the website that we'll have up and running in the next uh, month or so, which mm. will be good. So um, it, it's been one of those slow boilers, so to speak, or so I'm not sure yes. if that's what it's called, but it's, it's yeah. um, one of those yeah. things We're that have been bubbling along. That's right, say. that's right, yes. Uh, and look, yeah. if anybody wants to um, sort of uh, you know, invite me to speak at a meeting um, about LEAP, I'm <laughs> okay. more than happy to come <laughs> along and speak. And yeah, yeah, because I think it's a part of a conversation we need to have. Absolutely, and mm. uh, I've, I've noticed the newsletter that comes round, and mm. uh, it's you know got lots of very diverse information but uh, in this most recent one there's an article about what you've just talked about legal well not quite legally talked about decriminalization but uh, it's talking about legalization as the only viable drug policy and it comes from people like Ruth Dreyfus mm. who is a former president of Switzerland chair mm. of the global commission on drug policy mm. uh, Ernesto Zidio who is um, former president of Mexico I mean who would understand the impact <laughs> mm. uh, more than than someone like him and Juan Manuel um, Santos who is a Nobel Peace Laureate so from Colombia former president of Colombia so we're getting, um, you know, lots of, of support for change. Um, are we getting through? I think I think we are. You've got to remember that we've had over 100 years of, um, uh, you know, I guess, um, drug prohibition policy, and a lot of it is kind of heavily bound in, in our sort of moral sort of view of drugs and drug use, and, and legislation has reflected that. And I think that... Um, we, um, I think we need to acknowledge that, that this process is a slow process and it's a bit like climate change. It's a bit like, you know, um, yes. getting people on board with climate change. And you mentioned about apartheid before, you know, yeah. I was listening yeah. and I was yeah. in South Africa a couple of years ago and, yeah. uh, you know, I was speaking about drug policy and several people there said, look, you know, we had apartheid here for a long time and it took a long time to, to actually, you know, change yeah. that. So this is something which, um, you know, will, will, um, will eventually change. I have no doubt about that. And in fact, the UN recently came out and said, 
you know, as um, I think in terms of the General Assembly said that, you know, we need to um, start a conversation about decriminalisation of drugs. So at that top level, there's lots of conversations going on and people will say, oh, yeah, but they're just conversations. But eventually the momentum will build um, to a significant level where... There will, there will be change policy-wise. In fact, I, I am very, very confident in Australia we'll see one state or territory um, decriminalise cannabis use soon. It probably will be Canberra, and uh, we will get another pill testing event up soon, and I think there will be a state that will do pill testing by the end of the year. So I think you know, this is a slow process. It was a bit like you know, yeah. putting on my old hat of the Yarra Drug and Health Forum that you know, the injecting room debate was something which built up momentum over a period of time to yes. the yeah to the tipping point and the tipping point will come yeah so greg thank you i mean we'll be watching to you know these developments carefully here on on monday breakfast and so will other people i'm sure around 3cr so i'm sure you'll be in again and keep us I hope updated so. I yeah. hope so. thank you i like this opportunity thank you very much yeah well it's a pleasure thank you for coming yeah. this morning and yeah. and great to yeah be updated and i really recommend the Le- the uh, leap newsletter too if how do people subscribe if they want to uh, well, they can email me or go through Facebook. I'm very active on social media, by the way. Yes, what I was doing. And I forgot <laughs> yes. to mention I'm very active on social media through, through Facebook, through Twitter. Yep. So, um, and they can contact me, um, at Leap Australia. L E A P A U S T, Leap Aust. So yeah. that's my Twitter. Well, it's great reading. I mean, mm. you go from policy to human, you know, human mm. stories about how people have experienced, uh, you know, drug use and policy. And, uh, yeah. yeah, and, and the research, the science, which is also really important to inform policy. So it's a great newsletter. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, everything that we uh, promote is evidence informed, evidence based. And, uh, I think that that's the thing that we, um, have very much on our side is that science supports what we're doing as it yeah. does climate change. So, and um, and eventually, of course, um, I think the, the community will, will come along with us. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Thanks so much, Greg. Greg. Thank you. Great. I am sailing. I am sailing on the seas blue water. We sail for human rights, indigenous sovereignty and climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. Join us for the Freedom Flotilla. Sailforjustice.org. Get on board. A 3CR supporter. And a big thanks to Greg for coming in. And I just was interested in how much the things we've been talking about this morning are kind of linked together. Mm. So you were talking, you know, earlier we heard the conversation about racial discrimination and uh, dealing with that. And, of course, another kind of discrimination that's been much in the media lately is against uh, Muslim peoples. Mm. Uh, mm. And both in a strict as a strict, because of what's happened in New Zealand, Australia's also had to have a close look about what's going on here. No, no, and the safe injecting rooms is some kind of discrimination yeah, well, it as well. Is, yeah. Yes, you know, as you know, as if uh, people who inject drugs somehow aren't worthy of care. Mm. And how would that work to uh, change your? If you decide, well, I've had enough of this, but everyone th- looks down on. I mean, you need to build up your own personal strength and to have support. And mm. the injecting room is one way of doing that. 
So last week I spoke to Nicholas Persol, who's a sessional lecturer in Middle Eastern politics at the Australian Catholic University. Now his main area of expertise, he has many, but his main area is in political theory, both in multiculturalism and deliberative democracy. And one of his main research areas is political Islam. So he published an article in The Conversation um, on the way Western media reports on Islam. And so I spoke to him about that um, last Thursday. And I started by asking how he felt when he heard about the shootings in Christchurch. I felt really terrible. One of the reasons why I left Europe, where I was born, I was born in Belgium, is because I was very upset with the increased importance of the far right and Islamophobia in Europe, and I was not really happy about that. So the fact that I chose New Zealand and that that happened there, it was a big shock for me. I would never have imagined that it would happen in New Zealand. And I think you weren't alone in that. A lot of people felt the same way as we've seen since. So you've argued in your paper that Islam is a rich and varied tradition that can't be reduced to a simplistic theological framework or worldview. Can you tell me about some of that history? Well, the problem is that the people who are criticizing Islam, especially on the far right, but I think it's much broader nowadays, they are just focusing on one particular aspect of Islamic thought, which is more like Wahhabism and Salafism, who actually argue that other Muslims are not really Muslims. So the gap is so big between these different schools of thought, but they still put all of these people in the same basket. Uh, Sufi, Sunnis would not be recognized as Muslim by Wahhabis. Shias are not recognized as Muslim by Wahhabis. So there's a very broad tradition, historically speaking, in Islam of different debates, philosophy, the role of reason in Islam, the accuracy of some narrations in Islam. But all of these debates are not taken into account by people on the right and critics of Islam in the West. And I think it's intellectually dishonest because they just cherry-pick some aspects of Islam, of some branches within Islam, but don't talk about it as a very complex phenomenon. They don't focus on the golden age of Islam. They don't focus that nowadays, still, there are debates within Islam between different groups, exchanging different ideas, talking about the role of mysticism instead of just purely jurisprudence, the role of politics, and all of these, these debates are ongoing, but don't, don't really discuss that. And it is true that some branches of Islam are intolerant and not compatible with Western values, but it's a minority. And in the news we hear more about that minority than the, the bigger picture. Yes, but the issue is that that minority has been actually empowered mainly by Western powers, by helping to spread Wahhabism, which is the most extreme version of Sunni Islam. Can you tell me a bit about the background to Wahhabism? The modern phenomenon of Wahhabism it was born in Saudi Arabia about three centuries ago, and it became a very important religious doctrine because of political power it acquired. Mohammed ibn al-Wahhab allied himself with the Al Saud family in the peninsula, Arabian Peninsula. That alliance between Wahhabi clerics and the monarch, what well, is not the monarchy, so the ruling family of the Al Saud, created the conditions for Wahhabism to become an important political force as well. You said in, in your paper that if it were not for the West's continual support for the contemporary kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Wahhabism would have remained a marginal historical phenomenon within Islam, like a, a footnote of history maybe. Yeah, of course it's hypothetical because this is the way it is, but definitely the West has played a very important role because by allying themselves with Saudi Arabia, 
It's not just that they gave money and that they have uh, weapon contracts with Saudi Arabia at the moment. Australia itself is uh, selling arms to Saudi Arabia. Many countries in the West. Definitely France, UK and US are the main ones, but so, uh, Australia as well, Belgium, and some countries more like Germany and Sweden are reassessing and having debates in the parliament about is it actually appropriate to go and sell weapons to a country that is bombing Yemen at the moment, creating such a huge humanitarian crisis. And I've also read recently, I think it's an article in Al Jazeera that you may well have seen too, the US is looking to provide nuclear uh, technology to Saudi Arabia. Yes, I did see that. Unfortunately, I wasn't surprised because it's not a big surprise coming from a Trump administration. But it also shows that there are double standards considering that they are imposing sanctions back on Iran uh, regarding the nuclear projects. So yeah, definitely some double standards there. What prompted you to write this article right now? Just sheer frustration to see that there is a community that has been targeted and a massacre and to see that you blame it on the victim, I thought it was just very unethical. Is it frustrating for you as a person who studied Islam to see the kind of ignorance that's been perpetrated by some of these right-wing groups? Yes, definitely. It's ignorant. There's definitely the right-wing groups to blame, but I think that the broader society in the West is also to blame because to have to wait for a massacre to start engaging really with Islam and with Islamic communities in the West. That ignorance, I think, to a certain degree, has been promoted. For example, I used to uh, work at the University of Auckland, and that's why I did my PhD, main university in New Zealand. There was no proper Islamic study department or even scholar course or anything. To prevent these kinds of things, what would you recommend? There's something that's called the contact hypothesis. is the idea that when we get groups and people with different worldviews together and engage in some form of real-life experience, stereotypes or the other group diminish. So the way these debates and deliberations are organized are, is very important for the success of it, because otherwise it can actually reinforce st negative stereotypes. I'm a proponent of deliberative democracy. So I think that having much more deliberation and debates across communities is very important. So that means that you actually do, again, need to engage with the arguments on the far right and Islamophobic comments to disprove them. The idea here is not to actually convince people on the right that they are wrong, because I think it's really hard to make them change their minds, but it's actually to prevent people that may in the future be interested in the argument to actually fall in the trap. Yeah, and that was Nicholas Persol, lecturer in Middle Eastern politics at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne, advocating for better education. And that was very interesting that uh, the university he went to had no Islamic studies, really. And, um, you know, I did ask him also what the situation was in Australia, and he said um, it's better but he hasn't actually analysed it at this stage. He didn't you know, want to make a comment on it. He said it's better, but it's a bigger country, and it is something that we need to really pay attention to. So better education, more dialogue across communities. And I think also the interview you had, Dean, was, mm. was bringing that in, the importance of that, and challenge messages put out by right-wing extremist groups. So big thank you to Nicholas Persol. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? 
Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. Are you passionate about films, interested in cultural diversity or wanting to get exposure for your own film? The Indonesian Film Festival is just around the corner with our main events running from March the 23rd to April the 10th. There will be free film screenings, panel discussions and for filmmakers there's the short film competition. This year's theme is The Unknown and film submissions close on the 3rd of March. What are you waiting for? Go and check it out. The Indonesian Film Festival, iwfaustralia.com, a 3CR supporter. Okay, well, I don't know, um, Dean, if you've ever heard of a group called um, World Party or a song called Ship of Fools. Don't wanna. That one. It's 1986. 1986. I know the song. Do you? Okay, well, it was. I thought it was foreigner. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was big in Australia. It was huge. Yeah, yeah. it was like, I think, number, you know, number four or something. More so, it came out of England, but more so than any other country big in Australia. And uh, I thought about this song when we were speaking with Blanche Verley last week about uh, young people and climate Mm. change and how they were feeling and uh, I just checked out the song and it turns out Carl Wallinger is kind of the the leader and really the person behind World Party and uh, you know a lot of people uh, when checking out the web the internet I noticed lots of people say this is one of the most underrated artists you know (laughs) really uh, fantastic and it turns out that they have been producing music ever since and they're about to put out Ship of Fools again with different video footage background to update it anyway for anyone who's a fan we're just going to hear a bit of Ship of Fools right now since it's April Fool's Day And that was um, Ship of Fools, uh, Kurt Wallinger and World Party. And it was great to see Dean singing along. (laughs) (laughs) Bopping along. Bopping along to that song. Ah, the 80s. Ah, the 80s. (laughs) Okay. So um, about a month ago, four comedians walked into the 3CR Monday Breakfast Studio. Fianna Deru, Nikki Viveka, Elise Williams and Jackie Lime. And because we had so much fun and because the comedy festival... Is I hope you're getting out. To the, yeah, yeah, it's on our door, and that started actually. Um, we want to do it all again. So here's me trying to get in on the act and be a comedian, and here's James, a former three CR Monday Brekkie presenter and stalwart for two years, and he's asking all the good questions. There's so many shows I think now as part of the comedy festival, and it's become, you know, such a massive kind of. Um, you know, corporate event in a lot of ways with all of these independent artists um, pouring lots of their own hard-earned money into um, registering and um, using promotional material and taking time off work and all these kind of things. 
Um, you know, how does that kind of sit with everyone, I guess, the realm of, like, being an artist and, and you know, paying and being a part of that kind of um, the festival? Oh, I've got opinions. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Um, who shall I go first? Shall you go first with your opinions, Ali? Sure. Um, I think I'm certainly very aware that it's a festival that does exclude a lot of voices because there is a very high barrier to entry. Um, I think it's why you do see a lot of emerging comedians doing split bill shows first up. Like mm-hmm. I know Nikki is um, appearing in a split bill show as well just to try and split up that cost among a few comedians. Mm. Um, but it does, of course, mean that then those voices are limited to five-minute, ten-minute sets rather than having a full hour because it's just it's prohibitively expensive mm. <laughs> to join in with the festival. Mm. Uh, do you think it's uh, we might be looking at a fringe? Festival fringe comedy. Um, fringe, fringe is also quite expensive. Oh yeah. my god! Um, it's oh. not as expensive okay. as comedy yeah. festival. Um, yeah. Comedy festival is probably about twice as expensive. It is, but it's cars. harder to make your money back at fringe festival. Oh, fringe is almost yeah. impossible. Yeah. Um, at fringe, you just like you're putting down the money to to sort of experiment with your show and work your mm, show. Sure. Um, it's very unlikely to get money back. It's only like I've had a couple of shows which have taken off. Mm. I think of shows. Um, but otherwise it's a tough one. Yeah, like the festival thing is a real, real grind. I'm actually, despite all the shows I'm doing this, this year, this has been an accident. I wasn't going to do them all this year. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, I've had a few years. I've been doing comedy for about six years now. Um, and done every comedy festival. And it's been, like in terms of both the energetic outlay and the financial outlay, um, it gets really exhausting, so I have this massive period of time mm. where I'm very busy, and then I'll just be exhausted and broke mm. afterwards. And then you get your settlement, and if your shows did well, um, then that helps out a bit. Mm. <laughs> but you, there's no guarantee of that as well. That's the other thing. You can go to all that that effort and expense um, and potentially tank, um, and then you know you're sort of burned out and trying to you know claw yourself back out of the hole in whatever day job you have. Yeah. Um, so it's I've found like in the last in the last year I've been trying to do more gigs outside of festival seasons. I've mm. been trying to break, specifically break out of the the festival yeah. grind a bit, break the wheel, as Daenerys would say. Yeah. Um, I just um, find that it's it's important to do that. It's very easy as an artist to get caught up in the bright lights of festival because that's the got the highest profile of a mm. um, a comedy event. Though actually my off festival shows have always done better. Um, in terms of audience audience reach and stuff like that, um, and well, we definitely do have like a very festival focused culture yeah. for comedy in Australia for audience and and artists. Whereas, like in the UK or the US, you can be a comedian and sort of work the club circuit and just do sort of nights on bills all through the year and be making a living. Yeah. That way. Whereas, Whereas here, in Australia, you perform. You've got to have an hour long show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no paying. Well, very rare to get a well-paying gig. Mm. And, and you're now festival. talking in a, in a major city in Australia. Yeah. How is it for people? And maybe this isn't a reasonable question for you, but <laughs> what about if you're in the rural town or something like that? Are, are there, sorry, are there options in rural communities for people to perform? I don't know that. that I mean, you see a, a huge exodus of 
people from rural areas coming into, yes, like, particularly I Melbourne. I expect. So. Yeah, well, f- like in when I was when I was going out there, like there's no comedy of colours um, except <laughs> on mm-hmm. um, except on the TV. Um, there's no sort of performance really in, in my in my town. Um, but even when I was in in Brisbane, it was very hard to find comedy gigs in yeah. in Brisbane. Like there were a few, um, but it's also you know there's um, certainly more now, but like there's there's a lot less of it around, and also there's a lot less diversity in the scene. So mm. like all the problems that we have in terms of um, comedy being dominated by loud straight white men, um, just ramped up. In <laughs> in yeah. Brisbane, for instance, yeah. it was a lot harder to find um, female stand-ups or queer stand-ups or to, you know people from diverse backgrounds doing it yeah. there. Um, and, and comedy, of course, is potentially very subtle. It's not just up there and loud. You know, there's a nuance and you know. <laughs> yeah, what well, the art is. Yes. The scene is different. Ah, <laughs> I get it. Um, yeah. And like when I do it, when I do it, it's just loud. <laughs> <laughs> The best way to get a joke heard is just to yell it as loudly as possible. And if they laugh, who cares? I'm sorry to <laughs> To be loud. I can't believe Jackie Lamb just apologised to me. I feel very special. Not on you, Kane, Jackie. And um, Fiona, you, the last year was your um, first solo show, comedy festival. Yeah. How did you, um, what was your experience of that? Um... It was definitely along the lines of what Nikki was just talking about. It was very exhausting um, financially and physically and emotionally. But it was also very rewarding. Um, I, I, being my first one, um, and even still, I'm only my second one, the, the lights are still very bright for me. <laughs> 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 so I'm still riding that wave. Um, I'm definitely aware of, of everything that um, these guys have just been talking about. But, yeah, it's... Um, it's yeah, it's very rewarding, but it, I also recognise that I'm lucky enough to be able to do it, um, and especially because I'm from Tasmania as well. So, but I only got into this scene more so since I've been in Melbourne. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's not um, something that everybody is is able to just jump on board and take the opportunity to do. I think it also the way that it. Um, the way that the culture works it sort of speaks to how it's seen as well like if I'm talking to somebody outside of the um, comedy community about my show the quest I, and I understand because it's, it's interesting <laughs> it's an interesting thing to be doing but the questions immediately go to like what's the what's the process like can anybody do it or is it selective and um, do you make any money out of it it's just immediately going to that sort of that sort of questioning which I think you know I'd like I'd like the questions to be more about, like, you know, what's what's the show about? What's what drove you to be doing that? And can, what's can the I ask that question? That? Can I ask that question right now? Why? What brought you to comedy? Yeah, good question. My my first show was actually a lot about that. Um, I think just I've always I've always performed I've always it's it's my way of being seen and heard I guess is yeah. putting myself on a stage or doing some kind of ridiculous thing in front of other people <laughs> to make them hear me I'm not a I'm not a loud person um I don't know if you noticed <laughs> um yeah and that that's always been my way of expressing myself I guess and um dealing with 
pretty much anything that goes on in my life, I, I turn to comedy and to laughter um, to deal with it. So yeah. <laughs> why not do it in front of other people? And, and I like the joy that it brings to people as well. Like, um, we can't all find laughter in our lives all the time, but if we can go and see a show that makes us laugh, then that's, it's a good opportunity. Yeah. What about you, Jackie? How do you find laughter in your life? Uh, I, I find laughter deplorable. Uh, <laughs> the, sound, the very sound of it just gives me headaches. But I, I, the reason I got into the comedy scene was actually in a fever dream that I woke up from one night after a wild night of ayahuasca, which oh, is a no, strong hallucinogenic. I know. And yeah. I, was, I was trying to drift off when suddenly the, the, the mirage of a, of a guardian sphinx oh. appeared before me oh and God. said to me, Jackie... You need to get out there, and you need to get you need to get those smiles, is what he said. And I said, "What, Sphinx? Get those smiles? What does that What does that mean?" And he said, "You got to make them laugh, Jackie. Make them laugh, kid." And I said, "You know what? I'll do it. I'll do it." So I came to a small improv theater in Melbourne, Australia. And there I do comedy, a comedy show. And okay, it, it's really been. Uh, nothing that the Sphinx promised me. And when I see that Sphinx again, I'm going to be furious because he's sent me right down the garden path. Well, well right into 3CR this morning. Well, yeah. best news that's happened to me all day. You know? uh, I think, yeah, it is interesting, I guess, like looking at how do people get into comedy. And I think you know, a lot of people in this room have got through improv as well. And I think people... Um, come at that from uh, different perspectives and some some it may be um, you know that they think that the world is their stage as Fiona does but um, well, you know like people go through all, all lots of different um, for social um, to deal with social anxiety or just to deal um, with life and or as other aspects of performing but there's an aspect um, from that that you've all taken to kind of do your own show and I guess um, that's kind of interesting and yeah I'm interested to kind of hear a bit about that Nikki do you? Um, you want to hear about how I started comedy? Yep. Um, I mean I, I started first off as a comedy fan like I just used to comedy festival just used to be my favourite time of the year um, and it was I was working a horrible job that I hated <laughs> there was a whole lot of other stuff going on in my life and I would just go crazy at comedy festival to see all the shows um, and I'd be spending a whole chunk of money at seeing the festival and I'd be hustling for as many free tickets as I could get because mm. I just wanted uh, and it was like that festival would recharge me for the rest of the year and then I went from that um, into being like I've got to find a better way to do this <laughs> <laughs> so then I became a comedy critic and I was a stand up critic um, for a while and then so I'd seen a lot of comedy that way and then I got into improv and into doing the show um, I'm interested in that thing you said about recharging you, and I think mm. that maybe is that something now you get through the performing aspect? Is it? Um, yeah, well, now it's like if I compare compare me then to, to me now, because now I perform some sort of performance most weeks. It's pretty much every week I'm performing. I'll be doing some sort of... Um, if it's not improv or, or dance, it'll be stand-up um, or storytelling or poetry or something. So I'm... Um, my life is a lot busy now, mm. um, and I'm getting to do that creative expression. Um, so rather than bottling it all up into into one year where I get to go and watch <laughs> bunch of other people and, and and so on, but I think um, you know that that experience of being a comedy fan sort of reinforces like the the power of things like having having festivals and of having comedy in the world. Because mm. um, there was a time when that was 
yeah, that that was like the light in the darkness. If you know what I mean? It's like, oh wow, comedy's coming, comedy festivals coming, and I get to mm. like see all these shows. And because, especially if you don't yet know the comedy world, um, if you're still uh, an outsider to it, which most you know most um, audience members are, then comedy festivals where you get to see like the full range of artists who are available and and out there in the world. Yeah. So you do get to see a lot more more diverse perspectives through the festival context and if you just rock up to a stand-up night. Um, so it sound, that sounds like encouragement to get out and get along and uh, kind of recharge almost. Uh, yeah, like if... if it, like I sometimes run into people who haven't been to comedy festival yet and I'm always like, what? What, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> get along. Do you even live in Melbourne? Um, but I was like, the first few years I was in Melbourne, I didn't go to the festival either. I was just like, comedy festival, I should go to that. And then as soon as I saw it, it was like, I was like Persephone eating the pomegranate. I'm like, I'm in the world now. I can't get away from it. It's like a certain chunk of my year will be given to this from now on for the rest of my life. Um, Little did you know it'll be so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't expect it to be quite as much as it is. But, um, yeah, it's it was because it, it's both sort of exciting and, and regenerative like that, but it was, was quite addictive because mm. what I like about... Uh, stand up especially it's just the different perspectives you get to see you get to see inside all these different perspectives about the the world um, and in a light way and a fun way and a folk, it's not like seeing really heavy play which then you've got to go away and process you know and see theatre again for a few nights mm. after you've seen one comedy show you want another one and another one and you just want to see like all these different um, all these different comedians and how they see the world. So, I think um, one thing that I certainly struggled with, um, perhaps you know, around ten years or so ago, was going to see stand up. Uh, if you didn't know the um, comedian, um, I would always be very concerned about seeing stand up at that time because you, I felt like it was almost immediately. Well, sorry, I felt like it was going to become a moment where it was going to become offensive, and then I'd have a moment of like. Um, should I leave now or, you know, how to sort of deal with that? And unfortunately, it was a very common experience. But I think that that, although I'm sure that that still exists, that the diversity has, um, you know, allowed or, you know, kind of forced a change amongst um, comedians to, uh, you know, see that, that that's not appropriate and that, you know, it's actually, it's not funny either. And, um, yeah, so I don't know. I want to talk about that. Yeah, I think it's definitely improving a great deal. You'll still have pockets, like there's certain open mic rooms that women know not to go perform at mm-hmm. because their material will not be appreciated and they'll be on a lineup with men espousing some pretty off material. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the whole, the diversity on lineups these days is so much better. Um, and if comics are sort of getting up there and performing offensive material they won't be asked back again so it gets nipped in the bud pretty quickly and so the whole scene in a way it's changed it's changing as more diverse people come into it yeah i think yeah. it's it's still in that process of change yeah uh, and it's constantly improving Mm-hmm. I think that's a big thing I've noticed, though, is that even, like, those people still manage to get out there, mm. uh, I guess, with the fact that we have open mic nights and things where anybody can register and, and get up and do it, but the reaction is so just silent now. Yeah. It's like, I've, I've saw it, in the last few weeks, I've seen a couple of, of, like, short sets of people that just, they just shouldn't be given a microphone, they were just offensive and definitely not funny, Um 
but the general reaction was just silence and well that's, that's the best <laughs> isn't it yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. and there's there's more switch time people running rooms yeah yeah who yeah. will actually like you know not get that comedian back whatever rather yeah. than yeah you know like Canberra where I went to uni like you go and see an offensive guy <laughs> he's down he'll be back next week yeah um because that's what <laughs> that seems cool Mm-hmm. Um, well, we are unfortunately just about to run out of time, but if people want to just give some quick details of when their shows are, and then um, we'll post the details later as well. Yeah. And mine's already been said, but it's at Tampa <laughs> Terrace, um, Tuesday 26th of March to the 7th of April, 7pm, um, and tickets are available online. Yep. Um, talkie time with Jackie Lime. Um, we're on at April, starting April 1st. Um, we're doing shows at the Toff in town and at Trades Hall. Um, so just check out the Comedy Festival website to see what venue we're on when, uh, and you can grab your tickets through there as well. So everyone that comes along to the show, I'll personally give a warm hug, and <laughs> I'll bring you home, I'll, I'll make you a cup of soup. So oh. that's a guarantee, you can take that to the bank. <laughs> um, and, oh God, I've got to try to remember all my shows are. Um, $3 bill starts on the 28th, so... Um, we go through to the 28th of March through to the 4th of April. We're at Loop Bar in the city. Uh, Cake Bride, my solo, is going to be at the Melbourne Studio near the Spiegel Tent. Um, so I'll be running from 11th to the 14th of April. Completely Improvised Potter runs all festival at Trades Hall. Uh, I'll be on multiple nights. Um, to keep track of when I'm on at these different things, um, just follow me on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I put all my dates up there. But it's, yeah, yeah there's a lot. <laughs> Well, and Funny Tales runs, like, sort of, I'll be on in the later part of the festival. I think we're just running the later part of the festival. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming in. It was great to have a chat um, about the festival and about all your shows. And we'll, um, yeah, we'll post some details, and people should check out the Melbourne Comedy Festival website for more information. You're back on 855am. And that was... And that was the fantastic <laughs> Fianna de Rue, Nikki Viveka, Elise uh, Phillips and Jackie Lime. So I hope everyone's going to get out to the comedy festival and we will be posting links to their shows on our website so you can check them out there. And a big thank you to Alice Golds for producing that story. Um, yeah, yeah the, the comedy festival started on the 27th and it runs up until the 21st of April. Huge, yeah. huge lineup. Yeah. Um, and just quickly, I might make a few public transport autumn construction blitz announcements. Um, we we're just talking about bike riding and how and it starts today. Yeah, yeah it could yeah. get you there. So yeah. if you're in the Cranbourne line um, from Saturday, April the sixth to the twenty third, there'll be buses from Flinders Street to Caulfield. Frankston line buses replacing trains from Flinders Street to Caulfield from the sixth to the twenty third of April. Glen Waverley train buses will replace trains from Burnley to Darling from the 13th to the well for the weekend of the 13th and 14th. The Mernda line, oh, this is <laughs> that's your cause, line. This is going to cause a few game. headaches. Buses yeah. will replace trains from Thornbury and Epping from Wednesday the 3rd to Tuesday the 9th for six days. So, if you live out in um, Mernda or South Morang, try and work out something because uh, when you get off at Thornbury, there's not much else to do but catch a bus. Sandringham line buses replace trains between Flinders Street and Sandringham. That's the whole thing. For a week, from Saturday, April sixth uh, of April to Saturday, thirteenth of April, as well. Um, actually, whole month, all the way up to the twenty second. Um, most days there will be a bus and train replacement. For more information, visit PTV. 
to find out the autumn construction blitz. It's quite, um, yeah, it has a lot of impact. I know, obviously, during business hours it's important, oh, but it huge. also has a lot of impact on the parklands around the MCG because when people go to the football now that they can't catch the train, they're going to drive, and if, oh. oh yeah, so it's going yeah, to affect the park just gets ruined. Congestion, mm. all of that, for sure. And uh, so, yeah, so um, either get your bike out and dust it off if you haven't been using it. Um, yeah, I know it's been a bit cold, <laughs> but <laughs> it's actually going to be, and it's actually going to be a nice week. Twenty-seven on Friday. Just yeah, I, look I look forward to it. Yeah. Tomorrow's twenty-four. Wednesday, twenty-four. Oh so. well, it's only today then. Yeah, we're yeah. all over the. We're finished well, with the cold. You know, I think Friday's going to be our last twenty-seven degree day. Yeah, so you reckon that's your prediction, that's Mr. Weatherford? That's my prediction Weather here. Yeah. yeah. Bureau, yeah. The Bureau of 3CR Meteorology. Yeah, indeed. An important bureau it is, too. <laughs> and uh, look, I'd also keep an eye on what's going on at Footscray Community Arts Centre because they have New Zealand hip hop artists and mellow downs headlining um, their Here Footscray number two. And lots of different artists are coming through. Um, I think April 13th is the day to look at, but there are, there's always lots on there. And I'm certainly going to get myself over just because I love going to Footscray, among other things. The food is great. The uh, art center is amazing. Exhibitions, uh, great performances. And, uh, yeah, always a good thing to do. And I think uh, there was uh, six moments of Kingston as well, which is happening. It's a big, bold public art bus tour, which is uh, happening in May. So it's all about um, through Kingston history and join the biggest public art program ever seen in the municipality. So it's at the Kingston Art Centre. Um, and I think they received 65000 grant from Creative Victoria from their Creative Suburbs program yeah, to, that to looks be able like to put a, this together. That looks like a great program, and I've never been to Kingston, I have to say. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking of driving up and just... Um, That's yeah. probably where Julie lives, because it's around sort of Moorabba and Chelsea area, the yeah. city of Kingston. It's nice down there. Yeah. Um, but that was pretty much the show. Yeah, so uh, we, Back and announce our guests. Yeah, well, I'm going to start with... Donna Confetti, art therapist, performer, fool extraordinaire. And uh, I'm feeling a lis- little less nervous because there hasn't been a prank yet while <laughs> I've been on yeah, here. But I, can hear the f- I can hear the phone ringing. <laughs> but there's still the it's rest the of the morning. <laughs> yes. um, Greg Denham is always great to have him come into the studio. And um, we had uh, Jeanette Nkrumah from the Federation... Community Federation of Community Legal Centres, and she was talking to us about, I guess, the importance of the elimination of racial discrimination and the report that they're working on. So they're writing, uh, you know, anybody can get involved if they want to have some input um, into some of the experiences they've had with racial discrimination or some of the things that they've seen in regards to discrimination. They're looking forward to your contributions. She was on at 7.30. And then Nicholas Persol from the Australian Catholic University talking about the need to counteract uh, negative messages and really just for better education, uh, you know, all around. And I neglected to say that Greg was talking to us about drug policy and drug policy change and LEAP. So um, the law enforcement initially against prohibition and uh, now changed to partnerships. And don't forget that you can always subscribe here at 3CR, 94198377, or you can go to www.3cr.org.au, and if you've loved our show, www.org.au forward slash 
Wednesday break, Monday breakfast. <laughs> See you all next week. See you all next week. Great. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.